All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you guys. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We're glad that you join us. And, and I regularly say this, but legitimately I, I say it because I mean it. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to get you plugged into the community here at River City. And so uh, find somebody who looks like they know which direction the bathrooms are. And we'd love to just, we'd love to connect with you and help you get plugged into the community here at River City. All right, well, excited to uh, wrap up our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We have been working our way through this letter in the New Testament for basically the last six months or so since February. And so uh, we're going to have two last weeks. This morning, we're going to wrap up. We're going to finish our study uh, in the end of chapter 16. So we'll have finished all the verses in the whole book by the end of this morning. And then next week, we're going to do a bit of a wrap-up week. And what I want to do is kind of look back on our study a little bit and pull out some of this kind of these major themes that are there about what it looks like for us to be a church that is formed by the gospel. And so two weeks left in Corinthians, and then this fall we're going to be working our way through the book of Nehemiah. It's a book in the Old Testament. Uh, a lot of people think it's about building a wall. It isn't, but there's a lot of great stuff in there, and I can't wait to, can't wait to study that with you. So, um, But before we dive into uh, finishing up the last chapter of 1 Corinthians this morning, let me, maybe you are just visiting for the first time, or maybe you've been gone, let me just briefly catch you up on the entire book, and uh, we'll see if we can, <laughs> that's a joke, we're not going to cover the whole thing, right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, let, me, let me at least try to set some context for us as we dive into God's word this morning. So First uh, Corinthians, like I mentioned, it's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he helped plant about five years prior to the, to the writing of this letter. And and Corinth was this uh, city in the Greco-Roman world that was incredibly important and influential in a large way because of its location. It was situated in such a spot where it basically controlled east-west trade between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean for a big part of the year. And, and so Corinth was this incredibly wealthy and influential and important city in the ancient world. But it was unique because although Corinth, it wasn't just this wealthy, influential port city, it was unique because it was a pretty new city as well. You see, Rome had destroyed and conquered the city and then rebuilt and resettled it within the last hundred years around the writing of this letter. And so Corinth was a city that was new. It was kind of like, a, in a lot of ways, kind of like a Silicon Valley in our day, right? It's kind of new money, new kinds of situations. It's a new, new area. And so Corinth, because of that, was full of people who had this deeply upwardly mobile and aspirational mindset as it came to thinking about what it looked like to, to live in the world. And, and so the context for that is so important because that, that aspirational and upwardly mobile mindset, that was at the very core of the Corinthian culture. You see, in Corinth, the thing that absolutely everyone cared the most about was climbing the social and economic ladders and maintaining their places at the top of those ladders. One commentator sums it up this way. He said, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. Corinth is a place you want to make a name for you and a career for you and an identity for you and the, way, the place you went so you could become impressive and influential. Tragically, what we see is that the church in Corinth was no exception. As we study the letter, you see over and over and over again is that the thing that the, this church cares most about is not God's glory. It's not his name. It's not the advancing of his kingdom. It's their own glory. 
right? It's their own being seen as impressive. It's their own social status advancing. And, and this self-centered mindset is at the heart of pretty much all of the, in this, the multitudinous issues that Paul has to address in this dysfunctional church, including, like we saw last week as we began chapter 16, uh, the way that they viewed money. See, instead of having the, the mindset of generous stewards, what we saw is that the Corinthians were characterized by thinking like selfish owners. And so when Paul encourages them to give financially to help suffering believers and churches in Jerusalem, they're not really on board. They're not excited about that. He has to come back in, in the second letter he writes to them and to readdress this very same issue. And the reason is because for the Corinthians, they gave to things that benefited them. And in this situation, Paul's encouraging them to give sacrificially and intentionally to something that's not going to benefit them. And so they're not excited about it. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul responds to this selfish attitude we saw last week, and he encourages them towards a, a godly generosity, but what's so important that we saw is that he doesn't motivate them towards generosity with guilt or with shame or with duty or obligation. Instead, we see that he motivates them towards generosity with the good news of the gospel. He reminds them about how sacrificially and radically generous God has been to them in the person of Jesus. And so Paul calls this church to remember that Jesus, although he was rich, became poor for them so that they might become rich. And so when you see the generosity of God towards you, that's what transforms your heart. We saw last week from being a selfish owner to being a generous steward. And see, what Paul's doing throughout the letter is that he's, he is continuing to come back to the, tr the truth of the gospel and how that's the thing that transforms and motivates and changes everything about us. Now, the reality is, is that Paul's instructions about money and giving in the first couple of verses of chapter 16 are just one of the many things that he addresses in, the, in this closing to the letter. As we read the, the rest of the chapter, it's going to feel kind of like Paul is ping-ponging around to a bunch of different seemingly unrelated matters, and that's because he is, right? You will be right on the spot if you think, what is, what is going on here, right? It's kind of like, like the end of a credits to the movies, right? There's like a lot of stuff going on. There's a bunch of different th people or different things that are getting mentioned and noticed, and you're kind of wrapping things up as you go. And it can be easy, like it is easy to go to the movies and think the credits are something you should just skip. It can be easy for us to get to these parts of the letters in the New Testament and, and just kind of skip over them, thinking that the stuff at the end, it doesn't really pertain to us. It's not really that important. We already kind of got the big picture, but the reality is that there is a ton of little golden nuggets in these closing verses that are such good reminders and challenges for us as a church. And just like uh, my wife and I, we, we love going to, the, going to the movies, especially we've just been able to go to a couple now that pandemic's starting to change a little bit. And last night we saw uh, one of the first Marvel movies we'd seen in a long time. And I was always reminded, right, when you go to the Marvel movie, you wait. You wait to the very end of the credits, because there's important stuff in there, right? And you don't want to miss the things that are in there. And the reality is, is that I want you to see that's what's going on here in chapter 16. There's some important stuff in the credits. And if we just, if we just rolled before we, before we got there, then we'd miss some important things. And so uh, my heart this morning, my prayer is that uh, even though there's not one central theme or some deep theological argument that the Apostle Paul's trying to make, I am absolutely convinced that God wants to speak to us through his word in these closing verses to this letter. And my prayer really has been this week that God by his spirit would cause whatever little nugget of truth from his word that you need to hear this morning, 
My prayer has been that he would not only cause that to stick out to you, but that he would cause it to sink deeply into your heart. And the reality is, is that that's probably going to be different for each one of us this morning. And that's okay. And my heart is, I'm always so encouraged as a preacher that God's the one in charge of causing his word to sink into your hearts, not me. And so um, my prayer is that God would, whatever it is he has for you in the, in the closing credits of 1 Corinthians this morning, that he, by his spirit, would cause it to be good news to your heart and sink deeply in. So let me pray towards that end, and we'll dive into the closing words of this letter. Jesus, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the last six months and, and our study of this book. And God, every week we come together, every week I sit down to study and prepare and, and, to, and to write a message. And I am so challenged every week and so encouraged every week, Jesus, by the incredible timelessness of your word. Now, this letter written nearly 2,000 years ago, God is deeply important and impactful and incredibly timely for our very lives today. And so I'm so grateful, Jesus, that, you've, uh, that you would cause your word to be written so that we might know you in it, that we might know what it looks like to follow you because of it. And so God, as we study these closing words, help uh, by your spirit, would you cause whatever we need to hear from you this morning to sink in, to stick out to us and to sink into our hearts. And we just say, Jesus, for every part of that, we're dependent on you. Thanks that you love to meet us in our study of your word and that you want us to know you and you want us to live for you. And so we ask as we study that you would enable all of that to happen, God, for our good, but more than anything, for your great glory. And so we ask all that in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 16, last 20 verses or so of the whole book, begins this way, verse five. And after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you for, I'll be going through, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. And for I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit, for I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Now, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. He is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. For I am expecting him along with the brothers. And now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers, but he was quite unwilling to go now. And he will go when he has the opportunity be on your guard then. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And do everything in love. For you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they were devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad that Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus arrived because they had supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, they greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets in their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. 
All right, now, like I said in the beginning, um, there is no one central theme in these verses. There is no big idea. If you pay a close, if you pay attention every week, you kind of, I say some version of the phrase, like what I want you to see this morning or what I want to show you this morning. There, is, there isn't that, right? There's no one idea. There's no central thing going on this morning. There's no unifying part of this passage. And so don't look for a brilliant sermon outline, right? We're just going to, what I'm going to do this morning is we're just going to work through a bunch of these verses and I'm just going to highlight a few things uh, that I think are important, that stick out, that, that might be good good for us to, be, to hear and be remember and be challenged by. And the first thing that we see Paul talking about in verses 5 through 8 are, are really just his travel plans, right? He, he's talking about how he wants to come see the church in Corinth and, and really spend some quality time with them. And he's planning on doing that on his way through Macedonia later in the summer or fall. That's in connection with what he's talking about with regards to Pentecost there. And, and as I read that section, what was so striking to me was how seemingly uncertain Paul's plans are. Right? Verse 6, he says, perhaps I'll stay with you for a little while. Verse 7, I, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And you would think that in light of how catastrophically bad things are going in this church, that Paul would be making some very firm plans to get back to Corinth and kind of set stuff right. That his plans would not be like, I don't know, perhaps, we'll see, but that they would be like, they'd be, they'd be, they'd be really intense, really important plans, prioritized plans. And it's not that we see that Paul doesn't have a plan to get back to them. He does. He tells them when he's hoping to, for that to happen. But what we see is that Paul's plans are very much in pencil. Because what Paul understands is that he can plan all he wants, but God is the one who is ultimately calling the shots. And what you see in Paul's writing is that he's very okay with that. Right? He's not railing against that. He, he's not angsty about it. He, he understands that, and he's okay with it. You know, Some of you guys, some of you are planners. God bless you, right? I'm so grateful for you, right? Your favorite holiday of the year is like new calendar day, right? And you get to bust open that sucker and you start filling things out and filling up your calendar, right? Like it makes you happy every Monday to open your digital calendar and like see the things on the list and make sure things are going in there, right? My wife is a planner. I remember we first got married. We got married on January 3rd, right? We got home from our honeymoon and she's like, all right, we should probably start thinking about like what our plans for the holidays are. Like we need to figure out what we're doing for Thanksgiving and for Christmas and I was like, I'm just trying to figure out what's for dinner. Like, we, like, can we just get that far, right? We're just, I got 12 hours in me, not 12 months, right? We're not, it's not, it's not gonna happen, okay? You see, joking aside, planning is good, right? We see Paul making plans here, right? It's not that he's just like running around willy-nilly. He has a plan of what he wants to do and where he's going and when he hopes that will happen. And the reality was that planning ahead about how my wife and I were going to spend those first couple of holidays with our extended family as a newly married couple, that was wise. It was good to plan ahead about that and to make decisions about that. That helped us avoid all kinds of difficult situations, trust me, right? And so planning is good, but, but for you planners, like my wife, right, the problem is that your temptation when you plan is not to plan in pencil, but is to plan in like Sharpie, Right? Right? You write it down, it is in the schedule, right? There is, right? Some of you are like the people who are like busting out like the two-inch wide Sharpie, right? Like there is no amount of whiteout that is changing the plans that you have written, right? Once it is in the calendar, it is in the calendar, right? And, and so that's like, you know, whatever it is, whether it's holiday plans or vacations or your weekly routines or even spiritual things like meeting up with someone for discipleship or even just where or when your small group meets. And those things are set in stone, 
And it's going to take an act of God to move that. And even if he does, you're not going to be happy about it, right? You see, oftentimes I think the need to plan in pen ends up being a, a fruit of a, a, of a control idol, right? The way that you can kind of control all the variables in your life to feel safe and secure, to, to make sure you can avoid all of the problematic situations is so that is by you scheduling everything out and making sure you have all the details mastered. And the firmer those plans are, the, the more in pen they are, the better you feel, the safer you feel. But as soon as those plans change or for whatever reason, right, you start to get upset or anxious or worried, right? You start to feel like everything's kind of spiraling out of control. Others of you are like me and you are cool with going with the flow, right? Like you know, when challenges pop up in life or ministry, you are able to adapt quickly. You're able to kind of just move on to whatever needs to happen. You can kind of let things slide. You understand life changes and stuff happens and whatever, right? We're just going to move on with it, Okay. The problem is that the temptation for people like me, maybe you're like me, is, is that we tend to not plan at all, right? We are great with going through the flow, but the, the problem is that oftentimes we have no idea where the flow is going, right? You have no idea what's going on, right? And what can happen is, is that the reality is if we're not careful, we can spend years floating around in circles, never going anywhere, never doing anything with our lives, and never being deliberate about making disciples and advancing the kingdom of God. And oftentimes for people like me, right, that's a result of a comfort idol, right? Planning is hard and committing to things means you have to actually follow through and it's just easier to just not plan ahead. Whether that's in your personal life or your finances or in ministry, whether that's in investing in people in your small group or just being intentional with your non-Christian friends or neighbors, you don't make plans. Because you don't make plans, you don't ever invest intentionally in the lives of people. And you just kind of end up floating along aimlessly. See, and the truth is that Paul's example of planning in pencil here, I think, speaks to both of us. For those of you who are planners, right, the invitation, put down the pen, pick up the pencil, right? So now I'm telling you, I'm not telling you not to plan. What I am saying is that because God is both sovereign and good, you can trust him when your plans have to change or when he changes the plans, you see, the safety and security that you have, it doesn't come from being able to control all the variables in your life. It comes from being under the good and loving leadership of a sovereign God who is good and who is in control. And so you can plan and you can do it in pencil and then you can joyfully live as Paul does in the perhaps, in the midst of the uncertainty because you worship and serve a great sovereign king who is in charge of the whole world. And so for some of you, the invitation, right, is to put down the pen and pick up the pencil, right? For others of you, maybe like me, the invitation is to pick up the pencil in the first place, right? You see, to be intentional and deliberate about organizing your days and your weeks and your years around the priorities of glorifying God and making disciples. You see, even though it's hard, and even though it requires sacrifice and commitment and God's glory and people's eternal standing before the great king and creator of the universe is what is at stake, and those things matter, and they are worth giving our lives for. And they are worth being intentional about thinking deliberately about and planning ahead so that we might organize and shape our lives for the glory of God and the good of others. And so for some of you, you need to put down the pens and pick up the pencil. And for others, we've got to pick up the pencil in the first place and start being intentional about following Jesus and about making disciples. 
You see, those priorities are exactly what we see what Paul was planning around. And we continue on. We see the big reason that he plans his plans are in pencil. Verse 9, he says, is because a great door for effective work has opened to me. We read in Acts chapter 19 about how God was opening incredible doors for the advancing of the gospel in Ephesus and in the surrounding region. So much so that Acts chapter 19 verse 10 tells us that over the course of two years, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God was doing some incredible things. But what's so striking about Paul's words is that this great door for effective work that God has opened was full of opposition. All right, verse nine, a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Acts 19 tells us that a lot of people didn't like what Paul was doing or saying in Ephesus. They refused to believe the message of the gospel and in contrast, they were spreading rumors and lies about him and the gospel that he was preaching. There was all kinds of opposition See, for us, open doors and opposition often feel like opposing things, right? In fact, a lot of times when we evaluate the open doors in our lives, right, they are open, we think that they're open, in fact, when they are absent of all opposition. You see, the reality, though, is that especially when we are serving the Lord and seeking to advance his kingdom, not only can, but we should expect opposition. Jesus himself repeatedly told his disciples this, and so... I just want to encourage you this morning. I want to challenge you this morning. Some of you, some of you like Paul, you need to stay in Ephesus. You need to press into the open doors that God is giving you to advance his kingdom in your marriage or in your work or in your family or with some friends that are full of opposition but are still doors that God has opened for you to make much of him even though they are hard, even though there might be opposition, and to trust that God will empower you to do whatever he has given you the opportunity to do for him. Additionally, for those of you who are, who are in a spot right now where you feel like you're facing lots of opposition or, or, and you're questioning, you know, where are you really doing what God wants you to do? Are you really in the spot that God wants you to be? Maybe you feel like giving up on your friend or your coworker or your spouse, giving up on the fact that they might ever come to faith or that they might ever change and, and you feel stuck and you're wondering if, you're, there's, if this is really what God has for you or what you're supposed to do, where once you felt sure that God was calling you into a next step in this area with him. I want to encourage you, the great king and the creator of the universe is never finished. And if you are in a spot where the things that God has called you into are hard, that doesn't mean that he didn't call you there in the first place. I want to encourage you, keep asking him that he by his spirit might empower you to press in to what he's called you to, into the relationships, into the situations, into the workplaces, that God's put you in so that you might live for him and his glory in that space. You see, he wants to empower you to whatever he calls you to. And so ask him to do that. Ask him to help you trust him as you press into that. There is a lot more that could get said about that verse, but we got a bunch more. So let me, let me keep going. In the next few verses, what we see is that 
Paul talks about a number of different leaders. In verses 10 through 11, he mentions Timothy. Timothy was kind of like Paul's right-hand man, like his protege that he was kind of bringing around with him, training him up. He, he also mentions in verse 12, he's talking about Apollo. So Apollos, we saw him mentioned earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he was a really impressive speaker and a really great leader by Corinthian standards. We saw in verses 14 through 18, he refers to Stephanus and his household and a bunch of other leaders there. And in verse 19, he greets them on behalf of Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife uh, team who are leading a church in the context of their home. And there is a lot that can be gleaned from these couple of verses about leaders, but I, I just want to highlight a few things. And the first is this, is that one of the things that we see Paul doing here and throughout this letter, and as well in pretty much every other letter we see from him, is that Paul is intentionally and deliberately lifting up and empowering and affirming other leaders. See, Paul is not trying to consolidate power into himself. He's trying to delegate it out to others. Paul is not trying to, uh, he's not trying to make himself seem really impressive, like he's the varsity leader and all the other leaders are JV. No, instead we see him as affirming the leadership of others, all kinds of different leaders, right? He, he, he's not trying, he's not like worried that other people are going to like him or like others more than him, right? He sends Apollos back to them. We read in verse 12 that he, he intentionally tries to get Apollos to go back to the Corinthians. The Corinthians loved Apollos. They thought he was like they thought he was cool, right? He he exemplified a lot of Corinthian values when it came to teaching. He was incredibly winsome and, and one of those leaders who could gather a crowd. And Paul was not like that, we see. And the Corinthians really loved Apollos, and they were not big fans of Paul. And yet Paul still tries to get Apollos to go back to them. He's not worried about them liking Apollos more than him. He's not trying to make himself seem impressive at the expense of others. What we see is Paul is lifting up the leadership of others, encouraging and affirming other leaders, and challenging this church to be led by many people. You see, we saw in chapters 3 and 4 how the gospel had freed Paul from needing power or approval. Right? You see, we saw in those chapters how Paul understood his identity, that he was God's son already. And that he was a servant and a steward of all because he had already been given an identity and a value by the great king and the creator of the universe that no person or people could ever match. And so Paul is free. He is free to delegate power and he is free to affirm the leadership of others because he's not looking for the way that this church sees him to give him an identity or a value or a worth. And that kind of brings us to the second thing that we see I want to point out to you in these verses about leaders that we see in the end chapter here. And, and it's just this. The, what you see is that the kinds of leaders that Paul lifts up in this passage, they're all the kinds of leaders that the Corinthians would not have lifted up. They're all the kinds of leaders that the Corinthians would have looked down on, that they would have seen as not that impressive and less than and unimportant you see, in Corinth, impressive leaders were one who were great speakers and powerful communicators and winsome thinkers and people who could gather a large followings and entertain the crowds. In contrast, what we see is that Timothy, throughout the letters we see, was, Timothy was not only young, but he was timid, right? We talked about it at church that he had an approval idol, right? He was really concerned about what other people think of him, and that made him pretty nervous around crowds and made him hard, challenge him. To, he, was, he was not really the guy who would kind of stick up and say the hard thing. We see Paul lifting up Stephanus, 
who even though he was among the very first to come to faith in the region, did not pursue or take a position of power or authority, but instead dedicated himself to the service of God's people. He was a servant of all. Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team, we see greeting them from the church that they're leading in their home. They're not leading a megachurch, right? They don't have some amazing, impressive following, but they are faithfully and humbly teaching and training people to love Jesus and to live for him. You see, and yet these leaders who, who don't match up to the Corinthian standards of leaders to be respected and revered and admired, these are the very leaders that Paul encourages the Corinthians to respect and to submit to and to, and to honor. See, the qualities God looks for in a leader don't always match the world's standards. And when you look for leaders the way the world does, what happens is you really miss out on a, the godly leaders that God's actually setting in front of you for your good. So I want to encourage you, church, when it comes to following Jesus and looking for people who can help you to do that, look for leaders to follow who, who example the things that you see in, in these things, right? Look for leaders who love to give away power and influence instead of hoarding it for themselves. Look for leaders who like to lift others up and to make others look good and be seen as impressive, not themselves. Look for leaders who love to serve the church faithfully and humbly. Look for leaders who don't just pique your interest, but who refresh your soul and your spirit. Who maybe don't seem impressive in the world's eyes, but whose godly character and humility ooze out of them. There are so many examples in this church that I could give of leaders like that, but I just want to highlight one, and I didn't talk to them about this in, front, in the front of this, so, well, buckle up, right? But um, I just really, you know, I think Nathan and Hannah Blaubach, I think you guys are two of leaders that are like that. You see, they aren't maybe the flashy, upfront kinds of leaders that gather huge crowds. They aren't the people that everyone is clamoring to meet up with, but they are absolutely the kinds of leaders that Paul would have lifted up and encouraged his church in Corinth to, to honor and submit to and to follow. Because they ooze godliness and humility. Hannah and Nathan, they've been here at River City since the very beginning. And they have always sought to serve in whatever way was needed. And they're not looking for power and influence and authority. Instead, what they are looking for is to make much of Jesus and to do that in whatever way is needed. And if you've ever been around them, you know that they are the kind of people that refresh your spirit. They are never complaining. They aren't the people that drag the conversations down. They are the people that are always an encouragement, even in the midst of difficult things. And you always walk away from time with them, being grateful for them and being encouraged. We're still working out the details about this, but, but those are the kinds of leaders that we want to empower to have more influence in our church. People who reflect the nature and character of Jesus. And so we're still working out all the details about this, but, but we've asked them to step up and to lead a, a small group. So we're going to multiply small groups in our church. And I just want you to know, I am officially jealous of whoever gets to be in that group, right? Because they are the kind of leaders that reflect the Lord Jesus himself and who build others up and who serve to make much of him. 
not because they are perfect, but because they love Jesus with all their hearts and they love others who have loved, who he has loved as well. And so church, like that's what it means. That's what we kind of want, that's what we want to honor in leaders in our church. Two more sections and then we'll close. Verses 13 and 14 begin this way. It says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous and be strong. Do everything in love. A couple weeks ago, I was on vacation with some friends of mine and some college buddies. We were mountain biking in North Carolina. Just, just a really fun week together. Just so grateful for that time off. And I remember we were driving to some obscure mountain biking trailhead one morning, and we were just kind of reminiscing together about our time in college and about friends we had and about what the things that God was doing in the life and the course of ministry during our time there. And we, and we were just talking about friends as well from that time. And as we did, it was clear that a number of the friends that we had had during that time of our life, had, they had really just ended up chucking their faith after college. For some of them, it was all at once. For others, it was a slow fade. For some, they, they left college and just never got plugged into a church, and, and they kind of just drifted from their faith. For others, they married people who, didn't, who weren't Christians. And so their lives headed in a radically different direction. For others, politics had become their God. It became the thing they cared most about and spent all their effort and energy championing and living for. I just remember as we were driving along, my buddy just, just so profoundly says, yeah, you know, no wonder Paul keeps saying in all of his letters to be on guard, to watch out, to stand firm. See, because the reality is that there is always something that is vying for your allegiance. There is always something that is calling out for us to have it be the thing of highest importance and of greatest value. And so we have got to be on our guard and to stand firm in our faith, not wavering. We must give our allegiance to King Jesus and nothing else. And to recognize there are all kinds of things that are wanting to, to take our allegiance. But no matter what we do, we must do that all in love, Paul says. Just a few weeks ago, John preached from 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul tells this selfish and proud church about the supremacy of love. In verses 5 through 8 of chapter 13, he defines love as, how he says love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It love does not delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres and it never fails. And I think how significant is it that Paul's command to strength and to stand firm and to be courageous is tail-ended by a command to do it all in love. Because the truth is, is that you can absolutely be, believe all the right things and still be a jerk. And then you've missed the very point of what it means to believe in Jesus. You see, it's not just things out there in the world that we need to be on guard against. It's our own selfishness and our own pride. It's our own ability to think that even if we believe what is right, that somehow we figured it out ourselves. Somehow we are impressive, that somehow we should be the ones who get it. And the reality is, is that whatever you know about Jesus has been revealed to you by him. 
And so you are altogether unimpressive. And that's good news because the great king and the creator of the universe has loved you in the midst of your radical unimpressiveness. And he has made himself known to you. And so what they need is love, a love, as John reminded us, that can only come from seeing how Jesus has loved you like that. That brings us to the last thing I want to pull out this morning. Again, we, we do not have time to get to everything in these verses. There's so much more here. But one last thing I want to pull out. In the end, uh, Paul closes his letter to this church by taking the pen out of the hand of the person who's been transcribing the letter this whole time for him. And he takes the pen out of his hand and he writes these closing words in his, with his own hand to this church. And well, what really stuck out to me in these last few verses, verse 23 and 24, is that, is that he reminds them of the grace, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. You see, well, the reason that stuck out to me so much is because Paul closes this letter, which can only be described as a spiritual baseball bat to the head, right? Like, he... he he is, he is smacking the church upside the head because they need that, right? And yet, what, and yet in the midst of it, right, he reminds them about the, the grace of God and about his own love and affection for them. I'm just going to be honest with you. If I was writing this letter, right, it would have sounded a whole lot more like, well, and I realize you're probably not going to listen to anything I've just written over the course of these past, these past 16 chapters. So good luck, idiots. You're on your own. I'm out, right? Like, if that was me, that's probably, that's probably how it would have got written before God edited it, right, you know? But, uh, but that's not what we see. What you see is that Paul continues to come back to the grace of God. One commentator summed it up this way. He says, the letter began with a greeting of grace in chapter 1, verse 3, and it appropriately ends with the grace of God, as indeed do all encounters between the Lord Jesus and his people. Like the Corinthians, our lives and our relationships and our churches may be plagued by many problems, yet the grace of the Lord and the fellowship of his people are available to anyone who is united to him in faith. And so we must never take for granted the great grace of Jesus. Even more striking to me, and a reminder of God's grace in the midst of their sin, is the repetition of Paul's own love for them. One commentary I was reading pointed out that Paul doesn't close any other letter with these words. He doesn't close any other letter this way, but he says to them, he closes this letter by expressing his love and affection for them. In the midst of a church who in spite of everything, Paul reminds them that his love for this church has remained unchanged, even though they don't respect him, and even though they don't appreciate him, and even though they are living in opposition to pretty much everything that he has taught them, he still dearly loves them. And he has a heart of a loving father for, for his wayward kids. He is not angry. What you see in the letter is that Paul's heart breaks for them. That kind of a love is altogether surprising. Is it not? A kind of love for people who do not love you back. A kind of love for a people who don't want to care about what you have to say in the midst of your sacrifices for them. 
And yet Paul's love for them is unchanged. How do you get that kind of love? How do you get that kind of love for people? You see, you get it by realizing it that when you were just like them, that's when God loved you. It wasn't on your best day that Jesus said you were worth dying for. It was in the midst of all your crap, in the midst of all your rebellion, in the midst of all your selfishness and all your pride. That's when Jesus decided that you were worthy of giving his life for. And the reality is that it's only when you see and remember and keep coming back to God's great love for you in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your rebellion, in the midst of your foolishness, when you see that his love for you in, your, in yourself was patient, that it was kind, that his love for you was not easily angered, that it was protecting of you, that it hoped for you, that it persevered for you, oh, then you will start to love other people like that. See, if you are here this morning and there's people that you are finding hard to love, maybe people in your small group, maybe people in your community, whatever it might be, people in your family. I think the invitation for us is that we might ask God to remind us of who we were when he rescued us, of how undeserving we were of his love for us, and yet how patient and long-suffering and good it was. Ask him to show you what you were like when he chose to love you so that you might be awed and impressed and full of humility based on his love for you in a way that overflows into a love for others. I know that convicted me this week. Man, I'm, when people don't love me back, I tend to write people off. Do your own thing, go for it. See how it works out, right? That's not, that's not godly love for others. What we see in Paul is that in the midst of a church who has rejected him, he still has a deep and abiding love for them. That's good news from my heart. And I hope that is good news for yours. You see, it is the incredible love of God for us that we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. We remind ourselves of Jesus' body and his blood, which are broken and shed for us. Not when we wanted him to, not when we, well, not when we realized how much it was worth for him to do it, but when we hated him. We recognize and remember that he gave himself for us, that he received the penalty for our selfishness and pride so that we might get his love and we might get right relationship with him. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with God in any way. Instead, communion is the chance for you to remember, to remember the radical an incredible great love of God for you in Jesus. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember to the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to, to be the one who has sacrificed his life for you and so that you might be forgiven and cleansed and adopted and loved by him. Then whenever you're ready, I encourage you, go back and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right and you can dip the bread in the juice or you can take the communion snack pack back to your table and, and whatever way you feel led, do that. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not, if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and if that's something you even really want to do, I encourage you, hold off on taking communion. We don't want you to just go through the religious motions. We want your heart 
to be surrendered to Jesus himself. And so if you want that this morning, then receive the offer that he gives and then go back and take communion. But if not, just talk with him about it. He can hear, listen, and respond. And so as we sing and remember the gospel together in song, wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to impress on your heart whatever you needed to hear this morning. And maybe that was the reminder about the need to plan in pencil, right, instead of Sharpie, right? Maybe it was the challenge to stay in Ephesus or to press into the difficult relationships or open doors that God is opening for you, even though there's opposition there. Maybe it was the stuff about leaders, or maybe it was the reminder to be on guard and to stand firm in your faith. Maybe it was the call or the example that Paul gives us to do it all in love. Whatever it was, I want to encourage you to ask God by his spirit to cause the truth of his word to sink deeply into your heart so that he might transform us by his word. Let's pray. King Jesus, we love you. Thanks that you have loved us first long before we could ever even love you back. Thanks that you have given us your word God, we are grateful for every word of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we recognize, Jesus, that from the verse 1 to the very end of chapter 16, Jesus, that you are the one who has ordained your word, that it might be kept for us. And so, God, by your Spirit, cause the credits of this letter, cause them to shape and transform our hearts and lives so that we might be a people that reflect you, that live lives in response to your great love for us, and who love the world that we have been sent to, we pray. Amen.